Let's begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show praying a prayer for the Nativity by Pope St. John the 23rd. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. O sweet child of Bethlehem, grant that we may share with all our hearts in this profound mystery of Christmas. Put into the hearts of men and women this peace for which they sometimes seek so desperately and which you alone can give them. Help them to know one another better and to live as brothers and sisters, children of the same Father. Awaken in their hearts love and gratitude for your infinite goodness. Join them all together in your love and give them your heavenly peace. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swain, we're heading to the archives today to visit some of our favorite interviews of days gone by. Hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now. It's two minutes past the hour. Matt? Steve Ray joins us now from CatholicConvert.com, where you can uh, find all kinds of great information from him, including information on how to go go on pilgrimage with Steve. Steve, good morning. Good morning, Matt. We hear a lot about shepherds in the readings for the nativity. So we get to talk about caves and sheepfolds in the Bible. So uh, is it true that that they would keep animals in caves? Yes. In fact, even families lived in caves. Uh, I've been out in the deserts outside of Bethlehem where the Bedouins live. And the Bedouins kind of have kept the lifestyle of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, you know, wandering shepherds. And some of them live in caves. Many of them do, actually. And they build a facade on the front a little bit, and they live right in there with their animals. The animals live in the front part, and the people live in the back part. And they keep the sheep in there with them. And even when the shepherds are out in the fields, not where they're living, but taking their sheep out for a couple of weeks to go find good pasture. They will bring the sheep into caves at night because caves are cool in the, in the summertime, and they're warm in the wintertime, and they afford great protection for the sheep, too. Remember David said, King David, when he was a shepherd boy, that there were lions and bears that came after his sheep. So a cave is a good place to put them, uh, especially at night. Yeah, just make sure that cave doesn't go back too far so you're not coming in on a bear's <laughs> spot right Um, that's true so then this uh this kind of goes back to the question too of like jesus's birth because you know a lot of people have standalone little like huts like an outshed or building when they're doing their nativity scenes but uh if this has got a manger in it this means that jesus was born in a place that people were used to keeping animals Yes, and they, they didn't have those kind of houses and huts and barns, those red barns that we see all the time with nativity scene. Those are very um, European-American. In in the Middle East over there, they, they keep the animals. They either have them in a what we would call a sheepfold or a cave. Caves, of course, are much nicer because they can go in. It's warmer in there, and the shepherd can stay with them, and he can sleep in. This is what he'd do, by the way. He'd sleep in the entrance of the cave. 
And uh, that was, he. you remember Jesus said, I am the gate, I am the door? This, it, that's pretty much what it means. He's there guarding the sheep, and it's, uh, you can come, Mr. Lion and Mr. Bear, and you can eat my tender morsels, but it's over my dead body. I'm going to protect them. And that's what Jesus would say. Remember, he said that I lay my life down for the sheep, not like the hirelings do. They run away. The ones that don't own the sheep, they're just getting paid five bucks an hour. They run off, but I stay with my sheep. So they would, it, it's very much caves and the uh, sheepfolds, which that was where they would put the rocks. And you could still see them today when they're driving around out in Bethlehem area and down into the Judean wilderness. You could see these kind of stone walls that they would build to keep the sheep in. Well, you know, I've got friends who read various websites and get very conspiracy-minded, and uh, I've got also friends who are very frustrated with the system and politics and want to overthrow everything and be anarchist. And both <clears throat> groups of those people on various sides of the spectrum would say, you know what, we understand what's really going on, and the rest of y'all are just sheep. And I'm like, well, yeah, kind of. You know, I mean, <laughs> if you think about it— and- Yep, and so are they. And um, <laughs> true, right? Yeah, we're all. I mean, Jesus is the shepherd, right? So I mean, it's just everybody's a sheep. It just kind of matters which kind of sheep you are. Yes, and sheep are—they're not real bright animals. And but I've learned when we were out there filming with the uh, with, for our movies, especially the one on Jesus and David that we filmed all on location there. Uh, we, I was worked with a flock of sheep. I rented them for two hundred and fifty dollars a day, and they got so they'd follow me. And they're not real bright; they just kind of all stay in a herd and move along together. But when they are familiar with the voice, they'll follow the voice. They'll follow the one that they have learned to trust. And so, and th- this is something that um, I would, they would actually come. I'd go, brr, brr, that was the call we gave them. And after about three or four hours, the sheep started following me around because they got used to me and they understood me. But at this time of year, there's two really famous caves in the Middle East, the two most famous caves. And I thought we should just mention them because Christmas, the first one is the cave where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And it was a cave. It was a place where they kept animals. And I always saw our pilgrims. And there was on the ground, there were a lot of things that looked like raisins, but they were not. It was sheep droppings. And that's when you go out in the wilderness today, out in, outside of the cities, you still find caves that are for hundreds or even thousands of years have been used for sheep. And there's a lot of manure in there. And it was a very unsanitary place in a way to have the baby. But that's where uh, this was a cave in Bethlehem. And even the fathers of the church, the very first one, said that people are coming already in the first hundreds of years to see the cave where Jesus was born. Now there's a big church of nativity built over it. The second cave is two miles away to the east, and it's called Shepherd's Field, and there's caves there as well. And we have mass in the cave. It'll hold a, we can squeeze in tightly 100 people if we have to, much more comfortable for 50, but we can fit in that cave. And from earliest times, they put a mosaic floor in there, and they put a, a brick stone front on it, and it's been a church. For a thousand over you know, hundreds and thousands of years, it's been a church since the time of that. That's where the angels came down, and then they left that cave and they went two miles up into Bethlehem to see the other cave where the baby was. So uh, I know that there are a lot of different ways that people have thought about this over the years, but why do you think the shepherds got the word first? I love to ask that question. Why did the shepherds the first to bir- know about the birth of Jesus? It's just kind of a riddle, but it's it's actually true. The shepherds are the, always the first to know about the birth of a lamb. 
and he's even born in a place where lambs are born. So the shepherds are always the first ones to know. There's other answers, too, that they were the humblest of people, and the Lord comes to the humble. But I like to think that they're the first ones to know about the birth of a lamb, because Jesus is the Lamb of God. Well, did you ever watch back in the 90s that uh, TV sitcom Perfect Strangers? No. You never did. So you got Cousin Larry and his... Uh, his his friend, well, his cousin Balky, who comes from this Greek island, Mepos, and his family is sheep herders. And it's the most explicitly Christian Christmas special I've ever seen in any sitcom. <laughs> so oh, that's they're talking about, you know, at the end where, you know, they're trying to, like, talk about the real meaning of Christmas, um, which is usually where you get the worst theology in any television show, right, when they're talking about the yeah. real meaning of Christmas. And uh, Balky tells Larry, you know, it's Christmas is not just about presents. It's also the birthday of baby Jesus, right? And Larry says, yeah, I guess I forgot that. And Balky says, well, we sheep herders never forget it. We were the first ones to get the news, right? Oh, good. That's, see, that's right in line with that, what we just talked about. Yeah, very cool. Yep. So you've been to the yep. shepherd's field then? Oh, probably 150 times. And so we're going to go there again. And I always tell them that when you're out at Shepherd's Field, remember David was a shepherd out there, and he killed a lion and a bear, it says, with his bare hands to protect his sheep. And it also, I think, is where he wrote Psalm 23. He was, he was just wandering around taking care of his sheep one day. He says, the Lord, oh my goodness, the Lord is my shepherd. He takes care of me like I take care of my sheep. And Psalm 19, I think he wrote out there, too, when he was laying out, looking up at the stars, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. So this is where David also is out with his sheep, right out at the same place where the shepherds outside of Bethlehem were taking care of their sheep on Christmas Eve. And, oh, by the way, people say that you couldn't have um, Christmas on Christmas on December 25th because it's winter and you'd never have sheep out in winter and it says they're out with their flocks. Nonsense. It never gets cold. This is not Minnesota over there. This is very temperate, <laughs> temperate land, and people are out there with their sheep in the wintertime. We see them all the time. Well, just a, a quick technical note on what you just mentioned about David. So you mentioned that uh, that David killed a lion with his bare hands, um, he, but he he killed the bear with his lion hands. So <laughs> you always have a good joke. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Couldn't resist you. Uh, well, we've got sunrisemorningshow.com up, by the way, and if you go there, you'll get a link straight over to catholicconvert.com. You can join Steve on one of these pilgrimages. Go to the place where this stuff actually happened, which is incredible. Uh, Steve, thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you, Matt. God bless you. I'm Matt Swaim. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. Waking up with Mystic Monk Coffee is definitely a better way to start your day. 
Not only are you getting a great cup of coffee, but your purchase helps support the life of the Carmelite monks of Wyoming. And your purchase can also help our work. All you need to do is go first to sonricemorningshow.com. When you click the Mystic Monk link on the side of the page, we earn a commission. Support the monks and support the Sunrise Morning Show. Click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sonricemorningshow.com. He is honored as a doctor of the church and the so-called pillar of faith. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Cyril of Alexandria was Patriarch of Alexandria and is famed for his defense of the Blessed Mother's title, God-bearer, against Nestorian heretics who denied the union of Christ's human and divine natures. For that, he is called Doctor of the Incarnation. To find out more, visit EWTN.com and click on Catholicism. Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Jeff Cavins, creator of the Great Adventure Bible Study, the Bible Timeline. He's host of the Bible Timeline Show as well, all through Ascension Press. Find it at ascensionpress.com. Jeff, good morning. Good morning, Anna. Good to be with you. It is good to have you back. And we are going to be talking about the importance of the Babylonian exile to uh, to sort of illuminate um, our understanding of the nativity of our Lord, which we are are celebrating this week. First off, what was the Babylonian exile? How did it come about? Sure. Well, when you look at the Old Testament, it's it is important to understand that this is this exile period is a major period in Israel's history. In uh, real quickly, in 930 BC, Israel divided into two nations. Israel to the north with ten tribes, led by Jeroboam, who is an Ephraimite. And then in the south, Judah, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and they're called Judah. So you have Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Well, the north didn't do very well at all, at all. And they didn't listen to the prophets, Hosea and Amos, or Elijah and Elisha. And the Assyrians came down and absolutely decimated the north. And that was in 722. The South, they did better than the North, but not completely. They did not listen to the Lord or, or respond to the prophets. As a result, the Babylonians became the world power over the Assyrians, and it was the Babylonians led by Nebuchadnezzar, and they were the ones that were going to come down, and they were going to conquer Jerusalem. And so there was an exile and started in 605. That was the first wave where Daniel went into exile. In the second wave, that was 597 B.C., and the third wave was 587 B.C., and that's when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, they destroyed the walls, and it was decimated. And that led to 70 years in Babylonian exile. Well, what is an exile? Well, an exile is picking you up physically and moving you to where you are at spiritually, mm. far from the Lord. That's what exile is about, and that's a major theme in Jesus' ministry, like the prodigal son. He's gone away, and now he's come back. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit more about why this Babylonian exile happened mm-hmm. when it did, and and I think that this is where— 
when we talk about slavery to sin, I mean, this is exactly what is happening in the hearts of of the people of Israel, the people of Judah in this time, correct? They're not keeping the Jubilee, which Jesus proclaims when he comes. That's right. The reasons that they went into Babylonian exile, number one, is that they themselves were freed from bondage in Egypt. And as a result, he said, now you are going to do that with other people. You're going to set the captives free. And there were two major ways that they could do that. One was a big jubilee. Every 50 years, you would give back property. You'd forgive debt. Slaves would be freed. Every seven years, there was a smaller jubilee within the land among Israelites. Well, they failed at that, celebrating it in name only. And God caught them on that. He said, look, I didn't free you from Egypt, metaphorically. I did it. And I want you to really do this with other other people. So number one was the failure, and equally, it is corrupt leadership. The leadership did not tend to the flock. They only tended to their own needs. And they, they filled their belly and their coffers, and the, the, the people of Israel were, were left to themselves. And so in Ezekiel 34, God says something that is stunning. He said, you know what? The leadership is poor. I myself will come and seek and save the lost. So when Jesus comes on the scene, the Son of Man, the title that he uses about himself more than all other titles combined, the Son of Man has a kingdom that will never end, Daniel says, in Daniel 7. Jesus says, the Son of Man, and then he clicks that scripture with Ezekiel 34 where God says, I will come and seek and save the lost myself. So Jesus takes those two scriptures, Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 34, he bangs them together. Wow, he's calling himself the Messiah. A job done myself, and that's what he came to do. Mm. And so that's, that's a little bit about why they went in there. And then after 70 years, of course, they return, rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel. Ezra reads the, the scriptures and teaches and Nehemiah builds the walls. There's a complete restoration. Not as glorious as it was before, but there is a restoration. Well, I want to ask you one more question, which is sure. a little bit of a pivot from what we've been discussing here, but more from a, a biblical, historical kind of standpoint. So during the Babylonian exile, as we learn in in the genealogy of Matthew, the the kings go underground. I mean, they're in exile as well. And I'm wondering how Herod comes into all of this, because, of course, during the the Christmas octave, we celebrate the Feast of the Holy Innocents. So can you talk about how Herod fits into this story a little bit? Herod is an interesting character. His uh, genealogy goes all the way back to the area of, of Edom, which is the area on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and that's where Petra is. And he's from that area. Well, anyway, he, uh, Herod is really considered kind of a Roman Jewish client king, and he is placed in the area of Israel. He is a ruthless man. And the thing about Herod is that he becomes envious, and he's out of sorts, when he hears 
that there is another king. Well, Herod had to have known these, these prophecies from long ago, and he hears about a king, and that drives him crazy, and that leads to the holy innocence. He's going to wipe out the children of Bethlehem because he is so insecure that he's a great builder, and that's why he's called Herod the Great. He ended in absolute ruin because he isn't the king. Jesus was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Absolutely. We've been talking to Jeff Cavins, and you can get more information like this from Jeff himself embedded in the text of the Bible through the Ascension Press app. Go to ascensionpress.com slash app. And Jeff, really appreciate your thoughts this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's good to talk to you again. Likewise, it was really good to talk to you again. You're listening to a special Christmas octave edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 minutes past the hour. This is Father Benedict O'Kinsler from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Cincinnati for Sacred Heart Catholic Radio. In October, we celebrate the feast day of St. Luke the Evangelist. St. Luke was a companion of St. Paul. He accompanied St. Paul on many of his missionary journeys, including his final trip to Rome, where he was a witness to the great apostles' final days and martyrdom. After the death of Paul, he returned to Greece, where he wrote his gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, which gives witness to the earliest days of the church. Christian tradition tells us that Luke died a natural death at the age of 84. Legend tells us that St. Luke, as well as being a doctor, was also an artist and was credited with painting a portrait of the Blessed Virgin. Certainly his gospel could be called a work of art. Luke takes special care to give us descriptions and details of the everyday life and people that surrounded Jesus. St. Luke's Gospel also presents us with our most complete image of the Blessed Virgin as he recounts the Annunciation, the Visitation, the birth of the Lord, and the presentation in the temple. It is St. Luke who records the beautiful words of the old prophet Simeon after he has seen the child who has come to save. Words that should remind us that this same child comes to us every day in many forms and we should be aware of his presence so that we can also sing the beautiful song of Simeon. At last, all-powerful Master, you give leave to your servant to go in peace according to your promise. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all nations, the light to enlighten the Gentiles, and give glory to Israel, your people. St. Luke is the patron of doctors and artists. Joining us again on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. John Bergsma. He's author of many books. Good morning, Doc. Good morning, Anna. So, Doc, we're going to be looking at the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of St. Matthew's Gospel. Just first of all, remind us why it starts by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Yes, that is so much theology in one verse. In that one verse, Jesus is connected with three great mediators of the Old Testament, David, Abraham, and Adam. And folks might say, well, where do you get Adam in there? Well, the phrase, book of the genealogy of, 
only occurs one other place in the Bible, and that's in Genesis 5.1, and the complete sentence is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And so any good Jew is going to know that, and the implication is clear. Jesus is a second Adam, one to bring us back to Eden and restore to us the river of life and the food of life, which is the sacraments. And then Son of David as a title, not just any Son of David, because little-known fact, lots of Sons of David running around in the first century in towns like Nazareth, but only one was the heir the Son of David, and that's Jesus, the one who was promised to rule over the nations forever. And then Son of Abraham, likewise, every Jew is a son of Abraham, but Jesus is the Son of Abraham, because he's the seed that was spoken of in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, the seed who would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. And so, again, Jesus is all three of the seeds of the Old Testament, the seed of Adam, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham. Yeah, and when it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, right? What is Matthew <laughs> getting at by saying Jesus Christ? Yes, so Christ means anointed one, the Greek translation of uh, Hebrew Meshiach, which is literally smeared person, mm-hmm. person smeared with oil. Um, and being smeared with oil puts you into a sacred office, either king, prophet, or priest, all three were smeared with oil at the beginning of their reign, you know, marked them off for a special role. But of course, Jesus is all three. He's prophet, priest, and king. He is anointed for all of those roles. So that's right. Jesus, the anointed one who is going to fulfill all the salvific roles that we need to be led to God. Yeah, so let's start looking at this genealogy. Um, I would say, you know, it started, verse 2 says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah. You know, as you go through, say, maybe the first six verses or so of this genealogy, in large part anyway, we would recognize most of the names in that part of, of the genealogy, going from Abraham down through Solomon. But then... After Solomon, there are probably very few names that that we recognize, let alone um, know how to pronounce, but they're all kings, correct? That is correct. They are all in the royal line. What we're getting here, Anna, is the line of inheritance of the throne of Israel from father to firstborn son, or at least from father to heir, because, you know, there's some exceptions where the firstborn died or something else happened to him. So that's exactly what we get. This is the, the royal line, the inheriting line for the throne. Okay, and then let's get to verse 11. It says, Josiah, the father of Jeconia and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So there is this historical event that Matthew throws in here in, in verse 11 and 12, this deportation to Babylon. Can you talk about the Babylonian exile and how it is to, how important it is to understanding the the Jewish anticipation of the Messiah? Certainly. So there was this catastrophic event when in about 597 B.C., um, due to the sins of the people, uh, Jerusalem Uh, The capital city was captured by the Babylonians, and the royal house was deported. 
um, all the, the royal family was taken off to Babylon in 597 with Jeconiah there mentioned in verse 11. And um, we actually have, you know, archaeological records of this. We've got, you know, receipts, <laughs> actually, Anna, of, uh, like, food payments that were given to Jeconiah and his family to keep him alive when he was in Babylon. But anyway, it's kind of interesting. Anyway, wow. but, but the point is that they were out there for about 70 years, Anna, until the Babylonians fell and the Persians took over, and the Persians were nicer, and they let the Jews go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. And uh, that effort was led by Zerubbabel, who was the heir to the throne. Um, but after his career, uh, the royal line kind of faded from public view and got, lo- got lost sight of. And so during that time period, for a couple of hundred years before, um, before the coming of our Lord, uh, people didn't know publicly who the heir to the throne was, and that was because the royal dynasty was, was lying low, um, because they were a, you know, political threat, and people didn't necessarily want them to rule because other people wanted to rule. And so they kept quiet, but they preserved their uh, records, and they knew, the, the royal family knew, who was the heir to the throne. And that's kind of the big reveal here uh, in, in Matthew 16, is that when you come up to the first century, it was Jacob and then Joseph who was in line to the throne. And Joseph, the foster father of our Lord, of course, was you know, as, as people have pointed out, he would have been king if the the house of David was on the throne at that time. Joseph was Saint Joseph was royalty. He wow. had he was the heir to the throne, and because our Lord was his uh, legal son, the throne passes to our Lord. Okay, I mean, honestly, this is like shocking to hear in a sense because. Yeah, we know that that it's through St. Joseph that that Jesus is in the line of David, but we never—I, at least, Dr. Bergsma, never made this connection that Joseph was a man who would be king. You know, me neither, until a couple of years ago, it finally dawned on me, like, oh my gosh, all of these guys would have been king if their dynasty was on the throne, just like there's Habsburgs in Europe— who would be ruling over, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire if, uh, huh. if that was still the case, you know? And so there's these sons of David um, who would have been king. St. Joseph was full-blooded royalty. And, you know, a beautiful thing about St. Joseph is that um, Anna, you know, back in Deuteronomy 17, it gives the qualities of the king or what the king must not do. He must, he must not be wealthy. Um, he must not have more than one wife. He must not accumulate a great army. He needs to be a, a person of humility and virtue. And really, St. Joseph is almost the only one in the royal line that had those virtues of humility uh, that were required of the king in, in Deuteronomy 17. You know, mm-hmm. Solomon did not have those. He had way too many wives and he was proud and way too wealthy and, and all of that. And so at the end of the Davidic line, just before we get the heir who's going to rule forever because he is immortal, 
we get St. Joseph, who has the virtues really to be the king of Israel, and yet he is operating in quietness and humility, and he has to flee from Herod, who has an army, and all the, those things. So, Yeah, I wanted uh, to ask about where how Herod falls into this story. Can you talk about that? Oh, yes. What a crazy, sketchy story that is. <laughs> so the Maccabees uh, kind of rise to power back in uh, the middle of the second century around you know, say around 150 B.C., roughly speaking, the and they are a family of Levites who should have been priests but not kings, and but they're they're great military leaders. So eventually they make themselves king, but then they get uh, soft and wealthy, and so their dynasty starts to fall apart. And there's this Edomite named Herod, a descendant of Esau. And he marries into the line, and that gives him some claim, some connection to the throne. And then he speaks very good Latin, and so he sails off to Rome and gets himself made king of Israel by the Roman Senate, sails back to Israel with a bunch of Roman legions, and marches to power over Jerusalem. So Herod does not have the blood of David in his veins. He's kind of an imposter who's just ruling over the situation by corrupt, you know, Roman power, etc. And that's where he comes into the picture. So you've got this imposter on the throne, but then the true king is St. Joseph, but he has no army, so he's fleeing uh, to save the Holy Family down to Egypt, as we see later uh, in um, chapter 2. Hmm. Well, no wonder Herod wanted to kill the... <laughs> kill all of the innocents, the holy innocents, um, in in hopes of, of killing off the line of David. Absolutely, because he knew that so many Jews would have gladly stuck a dagger in his back and gotten rid of him and then plopped uh, a true descendant of David on the throne, and that would have brought in the Messianic promises. So he knew that those children of David wherever they might be, posed a political threat to him. Mm. We've been talking to Dr. John Bergs about some really interesting stuff here that's all contained in, like, the first, you know, two chapters of the book of Matthew, things that we never really put two and two together until just now. So, Dr. Bergs, I really appreciate your thoughts and your teaching on this. We've got you linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Great to be with you. It was great to have you. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. We'll be back after a quick break. Stay with us. It's 35 minutes past the hour. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on The Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. This is Father Stephen Alcott of St. Gertrude Parish in Madeira. This is a hymn to Mary the Virgin. Blessed is she, she gave a lodging to the Spirit who had made her pure and spotless. She became a temple to house high heaven's sun. Blessed is she, 
She has kept her wonderful garland, the virgin's garland unfaded. It will never lose its marvelous freshness. Blessed is she. Adam's breed, through her, was restored to favor. Through her, the children who had left their father's house found their way back. Blessed is she. Her body was never defiled. The fruit of her virginity, out of his affection for her, covered it with glory. Blessed is she. Her narrow womb enclosed the infinite greatness, which even the heavens are too small to contain. Blessed is she. She fed with her milk him who gave life to the universe. Blessed is she. She gave life to the ancestor of the whole human race, the father of Adam himself. She gave life back to all fallen creatures. Blessed is she. For all the saints owe their happiness to her Son. Blessed is the Holy One of God, the fruit of your purity. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Father Stephen Alcott. Monsignor Charles Pope now joining us from the Archdiocese of Washington. You can find him online at blog.adw.org and monsignorpope.com. Monsignor, good morning. Good morning. So I've been practicing how to say this because I know I'm going to tongue twist myself just attempting it, but why was Jesus born when and where he was born? It's a question <laughs> I don't think a lot of us ask. Yeah, it's, it's, um, and it, it, it comes from St. Thomas Aquinas who always asks those kinds of questions, you know, in the Summa. So <laughs> fundamentally, I mean, we can start with the place. I mean, I think most of us are aware that Bethlehem means house of bread. There's a fittingness to that, but some would, you know, argued, um, you know, according to Thomas, that he should have been born in a great city like Jerusalem, and so on. He said, "Well," and then he he pulls he pulls a very interesting, uh, you know, quote um, or you know, idea. He says, "Well, no, he imitates David by being born, you know, David, the first priest king, so to speak. He imitates David by being born in the place where David was born." Uh, where David began his work, and uh, then also where David ended his work in Jerusalem. Um, and so in, in that sense, uh, Christ, uh, it was fitting that Christ should be born uh, in Bethlehem. Uh, so they, again, these are just those little insights that, uh, that uh, Thomas, you know, you know does, in, in fact, uh, you know, give. So. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, because you think about the other places that he could have been born. So for instance... <clears throat> Uh, how uh, triumphant would it have been to uh, have the Messiah born in the Babylonian exile to lead the people out of it, right? Or right, to uh, yeah. to have him born uh, in Egypt to lead the people out of slavery at uh, you know a time hundreds of years before. I mean, you think about. I mean, it's not like God had limited options here. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, it is true. But as I, as I say, it's remarkable too when you think though about the humility of Christ, you know, how, how he was born, you know, in such a, such a small, insignificant little town. It's significant because David was, you know, but, but it's just, you know, the city of David, but it's, it's remarkable, just what, even today, if you go there, it's just a, a very humble place, a lot of poverty, and um, uh, gosh, you know, I go into Bethlehem, and I, with money, I come out with nothing, because just so many people begging, it's just, it's incredible, the poverty and the difficulties, and yeah, Christ was born there, and you have to, you have to go stoop way down, go way down into a cave to find out where you know, you know, the the, the place where he was born. And it's 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 just the humility, the humility of our God, is always remarkable. 
Well, and the timing, and this is what Paul says in Galatians 4.4, that in the fullness of time God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption. So what was it about uh, you know, that specific time in human history that was the fullness of time? Yeah, well, it, it, in effect, it, it, the, the argument it, it goes in, in two directions. It's um, the fullness of time, uh, Thomas argues, is, is the time chosen by God. You know, I, I often have to think, you know, I'm, I'm very often, um, I'm very often myself wondering, you know, you, you, why, why, why wasn't Christ born now? Or, well, you know, it, it, people always say this. Do you know how many people he got a got to through Twitter, Monsignor Pope? I mean, come on. Yeah, that's it, man. But um, on the other hand, he <laughs> he wasn't born, and I, I think that's the, the humbling thing for us. We, if, only was, if Christ was born today, he'd be all for gay marriage. And people talk like this, you know, like we, we somehow we're the most enlightened time in the world, and and the answer to that is no, um, we're not. But I think there is a sociological argument um, also to be made. A lot of things were in place that were necessary uh, at that time. First of all, the, there was the the, the widespread, uh, you know, the Roman Empire. A very common language spoken throughout the empire of of, uh, of uh, Greek, uh, the ability to come and go. So this was all of this was kind of to help the gospel be set forth, and it did. It, it spread like wildfire after after Christ ascended. You know, it's just astonishing how quickly the gospel spread. And those Roman roads and that fullness of time, the, the so-called Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome. You know, that there was there was a fairly settled time where there were a lot of put things in place that would help. For the spread of the gospel and, um, and and so on. Yeah, it really is fascinating. And uh, you know, sometimes I think about what would have happened if it was, uh, you know, he had chosen. But I mean, God could do whatever He wants, no matter where He lands, right? I mean, this, you yeah, got that. Yeah. But in terms of of the the fertility of the ground, you know, the Babylonian exile would have been, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a provincial and regional phenomenon. Uh, and mm-hmm. y- you've got that, but, or or perhaps. Uh, you know, in the present age with Twitter and social media, you know, mm-hmm. how easy it is for somebody to take two phrases, like three words uh, from the Sermon on the Mount and say, uh, you know, something completely the opposite of what Jesus actually said there, and that's the headline, right? Um, it's just a, mm-hmm. it's a different kind of way of thinking about communication before this era and after this era. I mean, it's, it's fascinating that mm-hmm. this was the time and this was the place. Yeah, yeah. The um, it's um, as I say, it's, it's, it's humbling, but also, I think that um, the fullness of time, when we come to that, is is uh, that phrase. It has to be understood too, though. As this is a a time that was you know chosen by God for His reasons, um, and um, we keep, yeah we think well, gosh, look at all the things you know He could do today and get around, and yet that's not. It's like the mustard seed. It, something is hidden I mean, it grows. And God often works this way rather than just, you know, big blaring announcements. Monsignor Charles Pope, we've got your post linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. I encourage people to go check it out. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Support for the Sunrise Morning Show is from Visiting Angels. Visiting Angels provides experienced, compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home. 
Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, light housework, companionship, and more. And services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels, online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com. Franchise opportunities available. Looking for peace? Longing for joy? God is calling you to know and love Jesus Christ like never before and to help others do the same. God is calling you to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world, to work for the new evangelization. Here's your opportunity. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, order the free digital training and facilitator manual, lordteachmetopray.com. Click on the red button now. God is calling you. Underwritten by Lord Teach Me to Pray. We know you love waking up to the Sunrise Morning Show with a hot cup of Mystic Monk coffee. And if you're looking for decaf options to have something to warm you up at the end of the day, the Mystic Monks have the coffee and tea for you. And you can earn us a commission that supports the show when you shop after clicking the Mystic Monk link at our site, sunrisemorningshow.com. Be sure to also check out our online store where you can purchase Sunrise Morning Show ceramic and travel mugs. Find our swag and link through to Mystic Monk Coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. He is honored by the church as one of the greatest enemies of clergy sexual abuse. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. In his time, St. Peter Damien fought against the many vices of contemporary clergy, especially sexual abuses among the clergy. In 1051, he wrote the Book of Gomorrah that is still considered essential reading for fighting abuse today. He died in 1072. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. with us on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. Michael Barber. He's a professor with the Augustine Institute Graduate School of Theology and author of The True Meaning of Christmas, The Birth of Jesus, and the Origins of the Season. Dr. Barber, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Annie. It's great to be with you. It is great to have you, and I'm excited to talk about this book. Can you just start us off with with an overview of all of the stuff that you cover in here? I mean, what do you think that everyone needs to know about Christmas? Well, let's just say up front that everybody loves Christmas, right? I mean, it's the one time of year where people start thinking about things that matter most in life, and we have these deep aspirations that surface, and what I want to explain in this book is that we can enter into the joy of this season, but we've got to recognize that in order to come home at Christmas, Christmas's home is found in the story of the Bible, and the better we understand that story, the more we're going to be able to enter into Christmas more fully and deeply. And there is so much to cover then. Yeah, there is so much. So what I did in the book is I look at how Christmas has its ultimate meaning in the story of Christ's birth, and then I look at the big questions that people often have. You know, people celebrate Christmas every year, but there's there's lots of aspects of it people don't really seem to understand. Why is Jesus laid in a manger? What's a manger anyway? Why is it so important that Jesus is born of a virgin? Why does the mother of the Messiah need to be a virgin? Who are the Magi? What's that mysterious Christmas star all about, really? Uh, how did December 25th become Christmas? How did St. Nicholas become Santa Claus? I mean, I get outside of the Bible, too, look at the Christmas customs that we're all familiar with. Why do we decorate Christmas trees? And what I found is 
there's a lot of unreliable information out there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things people think are true that are not true. And then there are a lot of truths that people have never heard before. And I think once you understand them, you can enter into Christmas in a more fulfilling way. And I want to talk uh, for the rest of the time about expectations um, and, and how you cover that in the book. So first of all, Talk about the Babylonian exile in the Bible and how that is an important part of the nativity story and the incarnation. Right. So every time we celebrate the liturgy, one of the major songs that you hear in church is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's like the quintessential Advent song. But what does the words of the song actually mean? All right. So Why is Jesus called Emmanuel? And like you said in the song, it says, Ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile. You see, in in Jesus' day, there was an understanding that Israel had been exiled. And, of course, there are many Jews living in the Holy Land at the time of Jesus. But, of course, there were many Israelites who had been scattered. They had been taken off by the nations into captivity and And Israel understood that this was the result of their sinfulness. Moses talks about the punishment of exile in the book of Deuteronomy, and the prophets announced that one day God is going to restore his people. In Jesus' day, the Jews were living under the oppressive rule of the Romans, and they longed for someone who would come and deliver them. And that deliverer is understood as the Messiah, in Hebrew, Meshiach, anointed one. The Greek word for that is Christos, and it's where Mm -hmm. we get the word Christ. So Christmas is ultimately about what? The mass of the Christ. People say, is it that easy? Yeah, it's that simple. (laughs) And and Christmas has two words in it, Christ and mass. And so what we're doing at Christmas is we're, we're celebrating the fulfillment of these Jewish expectations for a coming Messiah who will regather God's people bring about reconciliation, and bring them back together at home. And, of course, that's a major part of our hopes for Christmas. Every year, as I mentioned, we talk about coming home at Christmas. We long to be reconciled, to be reunited with the ones that we love at Christmas time. And that's perfectly appropriate because that is at the heart of these Jewish hopes for the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. And in Jesus, we believe that has happened at Christmas time. We enter into the joy of the realization of those hopes. Well, it's interesting. You talk about the Messiah, the anointed one, or an anointed one, I think is mm-hmm. probably a, a good way of putting it for the purposes of our discussion right now, because you point out in the book that there were some ancient Jews who actually thought there would be two messiahs. But how did Jesus fulfill the expectations for both? Right. So, well, there are all kinds of different hopes. And, you know, you can I, I try to be, again, I'm a scholar, so I want to be nuanced. So for ancient Jews, got to remember, there was no catechism, right? And, and so there were, there were many different kinds of Jewish expectations. Some Jews were expecting a Messiah who would be a military leader. And that seems to be especially dominant, especially the idea that the Messiah would come from the line of David. There is some indication, however, that there were Jews who also believed that there would be a priest 
earthly Messiah, a Messiah from the line of Aaron. And what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus fulfills all of these hopes. He is the true son of David because he is the adopted son of Joseph. And so he is sharing in Joseph's royal line. Some people say, well, if he's the biological son, if he's the adopted son of Joseph, does that not mean he's the actual son? No, that's the way it worked in the ancient world. Usually it was the adopted son of the emperor who became his successor, not the biological son of the emperor. All that mattered was your legal line. So Jesus is the fulfillment of Davidic hopes because of Joseph. We could talk a lot about Joseph and why he's so important to the story, but he's also the fulfillment of other hopes, like the hope for a coming priestly figure, like you see in Isaiah 53, where there's a figure who offers himself as a sacrifice and therefore as a priest, and Jesus is also that figure as well. So he fulfills all of the hopes, and that's one of the major themes of the Christmas story, and it's also the reason why we have lots of things as part of Christmas that um, actually aren't specifically in the Gospel, like, for example, in nativity sets. We usually have an ox and a donkey. But if you go back to the story of Jesus' birth in the Gospel of Luke, you'll find that there is no mention of an ox and a donkey. So why do we have an ox and a donkey in the story? Well, because in the Greek version of the prophet Isaiah, we read, the ox knows its owner and the donkey knows the manger of its Lord, but Israel has not known me. And ancient Christian writers like Jerome said this passage is fulfilled in Christ. Mm-hmm. And so when we have a donkey and an oxen in a manger scene, it's because we recognize that Christ is fulfilling all of the scriptures. He's fulfilling this prophecy from Isaiah. And so when St. Francis of Assisi set up the first manger scene, what did he do? He put an ox and a donkey in his major scene because he understood Christ is coming as the Messiah to fulfill the scriptures. That's incredible. Now, before we let you go, I want to ask one more thing, because we mentioned the Babylonian exile, which I would venture to say is something that many people have heard about, but probably don't really know what it actually is. And I think yep. another one of those bible words in kind of the same vein is the word jubilee. So mm-hmm. what is a jubilee, and what does that have to do with Christmas? Okay, in, in brief, and you have to read the book for a more nuanced answer here, okay, but in brief, there's an understanding that every, after, after, after seven Sabbath years, so every seventh year you'd have a Sabbath year, after seven Sabbath years, you rest on every Sabbath year, you would celebrate this great year called the Jubilee, and the Jubilee involves forgiveness of debts, among other things. And it, it, it addresses the implications and the problems, the consequences associated with death. People would have to sell their land. People would have to be sold into slavery. What happens by Jesus' day is that it's understood that sin is a kind of debt. And so in the future age, God is going to bring about an excellent jubilee, like the definitive jubilee year, when God will forgive Israel's sins of debt, and Israel will be released from its captivity, its exile, and its bondage to pagan powers like the Romans that are the result of their sin. And what we see in the Gospel, especially the Gospel of Luke, is that Jesus announces that he has come to bring fulfillment to these hopes. 
Jesus comes to announce the true jubilee, where sin, death, is forgiven and God's people can be restored. And that's a major element of the Gospel of Luke and the way the story of Jesus ultimately fits into Jewish hope. So in the book of Daniel, the angel that comes to announce that God will one day bring about this great jubilee, it's this angel, maybe you've heard of him, his name is Gabriel. And so in the Gospel of Luke, that same angel is the one who appears to Zechariah, and then he appears to Mary to announce that that jubilee that he declared in the book of Daniel is now fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's incredible. And as you say, go. To, it's important to go to the book to get more on this because there are some incredible insights in this book. It's called The True Meaning of Christmas, The Birth of Jesus, and the Origins of the Season. You can find it linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Dr. <laughs> Michael Barber, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. You bet. And that will do it for this special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Hope you enjoyed the previous hour. Thanks so much for joining us. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. Let's begin this special hour of the Sunrise Morning Show in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. The Word of God existed before the creation of the universe, yet was born among us in time. We praise and worship Him as we cry out in joy. Let the earth ring out with joy, for you have come. You are the eternal Word of God who flooded the world with joy at your birth. Fill us with joy by the continuous gift of your life. You saved us and by your birth revealed to us the covenant faithfulness of the Lord. Help us to be faithful to the promises of our baptism. You are the King of heaven and earth who sent messengers to announce peace to all. Let our lives be filled with your peace. You are the true vine that brings forth the fruit of life. Make us branches of the vine bearing much fruit. Father, we are filled with the new light by the coming of your word among us. May the light of faith shine in our words and actions. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning and welcome to this special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell and alongside Matt Swain, we're heading to the archives and sharing with you some of the best and our favorite interviews of Days Gone By. Hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now. It's two minutes past the hour. Matt. The Sunrise Morning Show continues. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Kenny Burchard. He is Director of Development for the Coming Home Network, but he's also a former Protestant pastor in the Pentecostal, specifically the Foursquare tradition, and we're talking a little bit about how he views Christmas now compared to when he was organizing services then. Kenny, good morning. Good morning, Matt. So great to talk to you, sir. 
How did you go about planning when you were a Pentecostal pastor a Christmas service? Did you do Advent at all leading up to it? Did you just do Christmas proper? How long did it go? Uh, I mean, do you remember much about that? I do, uh, mostly because I, as I call my my wife the Christmas elf, she was responsible for so much of the thought that went into not only what we did at home, you know, in, in our Christmas celebration, but also how we did things at church. But, you know, remember, we're, we were working out of very Protestant, North American evangelical contexts for how we thought about the holidays. So we didn't really understand, you know, this very ancient understanding of how to prepare ourselves for a season, that we're following a liturgical calendar, all those kinds of things. Along the way, though, my wife discovered at some point, you know, in the in the middle of our now 30-year marriage, my wife discovered the Advent wreath and Advent candles, and she wanted to incorporate those into what we were doing. So I remember a few years into pastoring our church, my wife wanted to start putting out the Advent candle. Well, I had no idea what that was. <laughs> you know, I was like, hey, honey, you, you, you're into this stuff, fine. You know, so the weeks leading up to Christmas, she would prepare our people by using an Advent candle. And I can tell you, you know, Matt, I pastored a lot of, of ex-Catholics. And I could tell that it was meaningful for them. It was a connection that they had to their Catholic faith, the faith of their childhood. So we integrated the Advent candle, you know, into uh, the build-up to Christmas. And then we'd have Christmas. And, of course, you know, in so many churches, including the Catholic Church, it's one of the most attended uh, worship services of the year. And so we would we would build up to it. But as far as, you know, following a strict liturgical calendar or even understanding what that meant, no, there there wasn't really much of that at all. There were times where we had Christmas Eve services, you know, we would gather together at a a local uh, church and do a candlelight service and things like that. So those those are the main things, I guess, that were common for us. Well, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to kind of the pressure that was on you. I mean, this is a big night of the year. You got to sell people, right? Get them to come back again. Compared to what's going on at the Catholic Christmas Eve service, right? The, the, the midnight mass or, or sometimes it's a little earlier, right? Where, you know, there, there's kind of already this thing that the pastor knows is going to happen, right? And he's just going to have a eight minute talk in the middle of it. And maybe the music minister will pick some songs, but but the Catholic Church is kind of, it sort of is what it is. It's not trying to necessarily sell you the way that you probably felt the pressure to sell people on your church when you had their one hour at Christmas. Right. You know, it's so interesting because right now, you know, in our in our neighborhood and in our community and even in our mailboxes, we're getting bulk mail and mass mail and banners going up um, all over for, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of um, non-Catholic churches in our city are all, you know, trying to get people to come to their, their Christmas Eve thing, you know, their, or their Christmas thing. And it's advertising, you know, hey, come to ours. We've got really cool stuff for the kids. We've got a special this or that, you know, because <laughs> the, the goal is to fill, you know, fill the place up, maybe get some new people in there. Maybe pass cool. the plate a little bit, Kenny. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know. Exactly, exactly. You know, and then this is, you know, this is what we do. This is how we... <laughs> how we do it, you know, 
so there there is kind of almost sort of a market, if I can say it this way, a market driven approach to trying to get people there and, and the, using Christmas to do it. Now, as as a Catholic, I see people. There, there's no ad, advertising aside from you know let, let's post on our website what time things are happening so people know when to show up. But there's no there's no sense that we have to do something to get people here. Rather, it's the, the Catholic impulse that we're in a season and that we're following a trajectory. We're living out of a story, a story of salvation, and that this is part of how we do it. And it's, it's, it, it, the calendar, the liturgical calendar, is driving us along, keeping us rooted and grounded in the story, and bringing us to this place of, of celebration. And you'll find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people streaming you know, at 11 o'clock p.m., streaming to their churches, filling the place up to celebrate at Christmas Eve and all through the Christmas season. And it's it's their impulse as Catholic followers of Jesus to do this. It's not driven along by marketing. It's driven along by the story that we're living, you know, carried by the liturgical calendar. So very different impulse, if I can say it that way. And, and ultimately, and, and you and I have been working on a series for the Coming Home Network about how the Mass is different than Protestant worship and all the pieces of that, but ultimately the Eucharist is what's driving people back, even if they don't—if if they can't articulate that's what it is. I mean, that's what it is, right? That's that's ultimately that's at, exactly at, the, right. at the heart of what's happening. But, you know, one of the thing I wanted to ask you uh, before I let you go, and that is that um, a lot of Protestant churches have gotten more into Advent. I see Advent— well, and, and Ash Wednesday, for that matter, too, in Lent, uh, these lead-up seasons, you know, to Christmas and then to Easter, I see a lot more Protestant churches digging into that than was ever the case when I was growing up. And so, you know, I think Protestants, uh, evangelicals of various stripes, can kind of get the Advent thing a little bit. What is a big adjustment, I think, for new Catholics, for converts, even for Catholics who are lifelong Catholics, is the idea of Christmas as a season. I wonder right. uh, what kind of adjustment that's been for you and your family to be like, okay, no Christmas, and then when Christmas hits, we're going to do it, not just for a couple days, not just till <laughs> New Year's, but like as a season. Well, I can tell you this. Remember what I said about my wife, the Christmas elf? She loves it, and so does my son, you know, that Christmas isn't over Oh man, this is just the greatest, you know. And, and we do think this way as Catholics that we're not just having a holiday, but really we're in a season. And that that word, that concept, gives us a sense that certain things are happening in our lives right now. Just as you look at the story of salvation, certain things are happening, you know, through the arc of of the historical narrative of how how God is saving the world. Well, we're in these, as Catholics, we're in these seasons, and they give us time to slow down and think and, and um, really soak, if you will, in the theology, in, in the, you know, the spiritual preparation that takes place in our lives in these seasons. And it just gives, as Catholics, it gives us time to, to really soak in uh, all that God is trying to do in our lives. You know, we're... we're <laughs> We're longing for for God. We're expecting joyfully. We're praying, you know, and, and we're returning from our sins, and we're preparing for Jesus to come. And you know, these liturgical seasons give us a chance to truly, truly deepen uh, our faith as Catholic followers of Jesus. So, my family 
and and I love it, Matt. We love it. Hey, we love it over here, too, at the Swaim household. I've been talking to Kenny Burchard. He is Director of Development for the Coming Home Network. Often people ask me, you know, how can I help out with your work? How can I support you? I say two things. I say pray and talk to Kenny Burchard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, we would love love to hear from anyone, you know, any of your listeners, Matt. Just come see us. Come see us at chnetwork.org and learn more there. That's all I can say. Yeah, linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Come uh, check out how you can be involved in the mission. And if you're one of those people who's asking the questions right now, we got a whole world of people you can talk to and fellowship with and be encouraged by. Kenny Burchard, thanks so much. Have a great day. Matt, thanks. I'm Matt Swaim. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Are you looking for peace? Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into a suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. And click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB. The Christmas Means Life campaign encourages you to add another person to your Christmas list, the baby Jesus, as represented by women and children in need by making a donation to your local pregnancy center. Another option is to support the JP2 Life Center, committed to saving lives with free pregnancy help services, holistic OBGYN care, and education programs. Find out more at jpiilifecenter.org. That's jpiilifecenter.org. Because Christmas means life. It's always harder to get out of bed when it's cold outside. So give yourself something to look forward to, like Mystic Monk Coffee for the first cup of the day. You can find a link to Mystic Monk Coffee at our site, sunrisemorningshow.com, and we earn a commission on anything you buy through that link. You can also treat yourself to a Sunrise Morning Show mug, which you can buy through our online store. Check out the mugs and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sonrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. From Rome to your home, EWTN's Vatican Bureau lets you watch all of the important events from Rome, even if you don't have a TV. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home. Watch live on EWTN YouTube and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. EWTN is the Global Catholic Network. Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. John Bergsma. He is author of many books, including Bible Basics for Catholics, New Testament Basics for Catholics. He is co-author with Dr. Brant Petrie of A Catholic Introduction to the Bible, the Old Testament. Good morning, Doc. Good morning, Anna. Today we're going to be doing some study on one of the most famous Messianic prophecies, that being Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, and uh, we're going to take a little deeper dive into verse 6. So I'll read it now. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, Dr. Bergsma, why is this verse in particular so significant when we're talking about Messianic prophecy? Yes, Anna. 
so significant because applied to any human king, uh, or merely human king, in the immediate time of Isaiah, this would be very, you know, at best what we call hyperbolic or exaggerated, right? And indeed, it could be that Isaiah is is speaking this, you know, about Hezekiah, who was soon to be born and, and would rise up and, and lead Judah to greatness, but Hezekiah is not mighty God and everlasting father. He might have been a sign of God's might or a sign of God's fatherhood. But as so often happens, Anna, what's so, dare I say, cool <laughs> or yep. neat, whatever, <laughs> uh, awesome about these prophecies is that what was exaggerated or what was poetic about Savior figures in the Old Testament becomes literally true of the Messiah, and that's so amazing. The Messiah is indeed mighty God in a person, and and Jesus shows that, for example, by just telling the wind and the waves to stop, you know, displaying this divine power. So that's a a principle that we should keep in mind when reading the Old Testament. It's often these poetic passages come to rest in a literal sense in the person of Jesus. Well, I just want to get your commentary on on each of these four titles that we read in Isaiah chapter 9, which of course is a, a very um, famous passage thanks to it being read during Christmas time. So start us off with Wonderful Counselor. Certainly. This is a, a title that calls to mind Solomon. The term counselor there is like a legal term. You know, to this day, we refer to having an attorney as, you know, retaining counsel. And we think back to Solomon, and we remember what a great legal mind he had and how, you know, there were famous court cases where he was able to determine the true mother of a, of a child and, and so on. So this, he, he is this great legal mind, this wonderful counselor, but when it comes to our Lord, he is the wonderful counselor because, as it were, he is our defense attorney who understands the law of God and a way to acquit us and to declare us innocent within within the law of God. Yeah. And since you mentioned Solomon, why don't we talk about the, the connection with Solomon? We'll skip over Mighty God for a moment. Talk about Prince of Peace. Sure. Anna, these, the, what's so neat here is these outer terms, the Wonderful Counselor and the Prince of Peace, which are the first and last, you know, so the outside, they're both connected to Solomon. So Prince of Peace refers again to Solomon because his name means peace. It's just shalom, the Hebrew word, made into a man's name. Solomon was the original Prince of Peace, and, and the great legal mind. So we're, we're, we're looking forward to a Savior figure who, on the outside, is going to look like Solomon. Hmm. The son of David. Indeed. So then let's jump into these two middle terms. You mentioned a little bit about Mighty God. Do you have anything else you would like to add to that? Sometimes it's translated, you know, God-warrior, which... Or God-hero. God-hero, yeah, God <laughs> God yeah, which uh, I don't like that very much. But yeah, it's it's referring to uh, God as a mighty warrior, one who extends his omnipotence, and then everlasting Father, likewise. This is a rare instance. There's only about 17 times in the Old Testament that God is referred to as Father. You know, so these are divine terms. You know, those can only be properly 
applied to God. And again, so fascinating. So we're looking forward to a, a Savior figure who on the outside is going to be royal son of David, but on the inside, he's going to be the fullness of divinity. He's going to be God in himself. And that's what we call in theology the hypostatic union, or the union of two natures in one person, defined at Nicaea. But this is a thousand years before Nicaea, Anna. So amazing that already the two natures of Christ are being um, predicted here. Wow. That's that's really beautiful. And and before we let you go, um, how many times did you say that God is mentioned as Father in the Bible? It's it's usually given about seventeen times wow. in the Old Testament. In the that's Old it. Testament. Oh, in yeah. the Old Testament. Okay. In the Old Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount alone, Jesus mentions it speaks of God as Father seventeen times. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's it's just very much weighted towards the New Testament in terms of the revelation of God as Father. <laughs> and uh, why Jesus says that we should call no man Father? That is a great point. You know, what we see in this passage here in Isaiah 9-6, Anna, is this idea of the name being called really refers to the essence of a person, because after all, you can scan the entire New Testament, and Jesus is never called Wonderful Counselor, or Prince of Peace, or any of these terms in the New Testament. Is the prophecy unfulfilled? No, not at all, because this idiom, uh, the name being called, actually refers to the essence of a person. And Jesus uses that same Hebrew idiom in Matthew when he says, call no one on earth father. What he's talking about is recognize that no one on earth has the essence of fatherhood. He's not saying we can't call our dad, dad, or our priest, father, but he's saying recognize that, as St. Paul will say later in Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, all fatherhood comes from God the Father. He is the only one who has the true essence of fatherhood. We've been talking to Dr. John Bergsma. I wish we had more time. Well, we've got you linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Doc, thanks so much. Absolutely. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. It's 21 past the hour. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on The Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. If I asked you to identify someone named Zaphonat Panea, you'd probably be at a loss. Here's his story. He was deprived of his homeland while still a young man. He ended up marrying into an influential family in his new homeland. He and his wife were blessed with two sons. He was blessed in many other ways, too. Ultimately, he was in such a position as to help his entire family survive a devastating famine. By now, you may have guessed who this mystery figure is. His more familiar name is Joseph, son of Jacob. 
Joseph, who rose from deprivation to become the second most powerful figure in Egypt. Zaphonat Panea was the name Pharaoh gave him at the time he received his promotion in Egypt. But surely for all of us, Joseph is the name that we love. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. Joining us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief of EWTN News and creator of EWTN's Doctors of the Church series. Good morning, Doc. Welcome back. Great to be with you. It is great to have you. And, you know, we take a lot of things for granted, I think, as as modern Christians. Uh, the theology of the nativity being chief among them, really. You know, I think of all of the beautiful theology in, in like, verses to our favorite Christmas carols, like, like, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Just beautiful poetry, beautiful theology that we have in our tradition. But the early church fathers had to fight in order for us to be able to sing lyrics like that, didn't they? Well, that's right. I mean, the Arian heresy, which effectively, in broad terms, denied the divinity of Christ, was propagated very successfully by the, the heresiarch Arius and his supporters in a variety of ways. But one of the most successful was to turn different theological statements into like sea shanties or rhymes or little songs that people could remember. It was a way of teaching uh, those who weren't necessarily book-learned or scroll-learned, given the era, and made much more difficult uh, the task of some of the great fathers and doctors of the Church, Athanasius, Cyril of Alexandria, and a host of others, in refuting these in, in a way, too, that was equally digestible and understandable by those who weren't necessarily the most learned, but who still were doing everything they could to understand the faith, and who, in good faith, thought that what was being taught about Christ from the Arian heresy side was true, because we had so many bishops in the Church who actually embraced it for a time. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about those two guys you just mentioned from Alexandria, Athanasius and Cyril. Now, just as a bit of an overview first, Dr. Bunsen, what are their contributions to the debate that was raging over the person of Jesus Christ? Well, we start with uh, Athanasius, and, and that is the, well, two things, really. The, the first is his magnificent book, De Incarnazione, on the Incarnation. And it, in many ways, put him on the map, so to speak, uh, across much of the, the Eastern Church, certainly, in helping to explore the Incarnation itself. Talking about those great lyrics or phrases, uh, as he put it, uh, Christ was incarnate that we might become God. Now, he's not talking about an apotheosis or anything like that. He is talking about the Incarnation and what it was to achieve for us, how we gain by grace what the Son has by nature. To be able to articulate that 
in this book, I think, was absolutely essential, and it was crucial preparation for what I think we would all remember was his uh, greatest defense of the balance of Christ's humanity and divinity, but in particular, uh, his defense of Christ's divinity uh, in refuting the Arian heresy. And all of this becomes crucial once we get to the Council of Nicaea in 325, that condemned the heresy of Arianism, that questioned the divinity of Christ. But it also reminds us of just how much Athanasius, Athanasius suffered because of the popularity of things like sea shanties and the betrayal of orthodoxy by bishops. Embrace the Arian cause in the East with the help of emperors. And so the very question of the Incarnation is suspect. And for Athanasius, that was unacceptable. And that's why he suffered five different times of exile, over 30-plus years of service uh, as a bishop uh, and as a theologian, uh, defending the divinity of Christ. And we keep coming back, though, to the question also of on the Incarnation, the Incarnazione, because it's not just an important book in its time historically, but it's really a profound introduction to an, a proper understanding of the Trinity, of, of what's called Trinitarian theology, that also undergirds so much of the debates of the time. And that moves us also towards someone like Cyril of Alexandria, at a time when even greater precision uh, in understanding what the Church was teaching uh, and believed uh, was needed in the face of new heresies. Well, let's stick with Athanasius for, for just another moment here. Can you talk about the reasons that Athanasius, or I guess some, <laughs> some of the reasons, maybe your favorites, um, that, that Athanasius gives for why God would become man. Yeah, well, he includes a host of what I think are really interesting uh, concepts. One, of course, is the, the argument of uh, from the, on his book, Corruptibility and Incorruptibility. And that's the one that has always really stayed with me since uh, I, I first read it, in which he talks about that the moment of Christ's incarnation to his resurrection is this fascinating uh, idea of corruptibility versus that which is incorrupt. And of course, Christ as divine is incorrupt. We have the incorruptible word who has come into history, who has penetrated into the world through the incarnation. He enters into creation, which itself is corruptible, in order to turn what is corruptible humanity back up to God. And so there's this journey that we see in this very simple concept of that which is corruptible versus that which is incorruptible. And we can see the one of those great ideas of the teachings of kenosis. Now, when we're talking about that, we're talking about the self-emptying of God. And it is then this incorruptible, the Word coming down. In taking on a body, the incorruptible Word, what do we see? We see the reversal in humanity of corruption. We still have the debt that is paid by the death of Christ uh, through the grace of resurrection, as, as he writes it. So it's this reversal of corruption, uh, but it also helps us to understand, again, in this kenosis, the self-emptying, 
that is so beautifully expressed by Paul in Philippians, that Christ became so vulnerable by entering into that which is corruptible in creation as a child, as the most vulnerable thing in the world. And yet we have in this child, in this nativity, the incarnation itself, the greatest event in human history, the greatest event in the history of the world, but has at the same time this beautiful direction to it of why Christ came, why he emptied himself and what he's giving us uh, through his death, through his resurrection, and through the witness to the incorruptibility that is the divine Christ. So that man may become God, which is where you you began with him. Now, let's look at Cyril. How does Cyril of Alexandria then sort of, I guess you could say, build on the theology of of Athanasius to to defend the two natures of Christ? Well, and that's uh, absolutely crucial, because we see coming out of the Arian controversy, and we see this throughout all the Christological heresies of uh, the 4th into the 5th and even the 6th centuries, of what is the understand? What is the authentic, true teaching? What? Who is Christ? And we see different pivots. We see these gravitational pulls from one direction to the next. But then you had a variety of heresies that were trying to grapple with the question of, all right, if Christ is divine, Christ is also human. How does that work? And so we're, we're starting to see in, in some of the great councils, like in 431 in Ephesus, uh, where you had uh, the Nestorians uh, who were unwilling, uh, for example, uh, to accept the idea of two natures in one person. Rather, and, and this becomes absolutely vital in, in how specific and how precise we have to be in our terminology. Mm-hmm. Was Christ one person with two natures, or was he, as an historians basically claim, two persons, divine and human, and that the divine person essentially took on human form. And if that's the case, then how could we call Mary Theotokos, Mother of God, when she should, based on that, only be Christotokos, or the Mother of Christ, or the Christ-bearer? Now, Cyril, of course, understood that this was impossible, that uh, to, to give her that title was not only to do a great disservice to her, but also, as we've seen throughout all of history, in Marian dogmas, in everything related to the Blessed Mother, we always see Christ. So if, if our understanding of the Blessed Mother as Christotokos, as Christ-bearer, and she is not Theotokos, then we have a problem. So we see how she becomes this great lens for understanding Christ, and that's, I think, one of the great gifts that Cyril gave to us, where it's more than just semantics, it's more than just a bunch of terms. It's really an understanding of the profound ramifications of what we're actually teaching, that yes, Christ is one person with two natures, human and divine, and how that is held together uh, in theological terms is called the hypostatic union. That balance is so crucial uh, in understanding who Christ is, but also how our own story of redemption plays out because of it. We're going to have to close the conversation there, unfortunately, but uh, just some incredible, 
incredible thoughts here from Dr. Matthew Bunsen, drawing on the theology of St. Athanasius and St. Cyril of Alexandria. And all I got to say, Doc, is I'm just so grateful they did all of that work so that all I have to do is sit in the pew and sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. <laughs> yes. But if, if the one takeaway is pay attention to those lyrics because they matter, at least, in the good, at least in the good carols. Amen to that. We've been talking to Dr. Matthew Bunsen from EWTN News and the National Catholic Register. Doc, thank you so much. Great to be with you. It's the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 minutes past the hour. This is Father Rob Jack with the Catechism Moment. When we speak of divine revelation, what we are talking about is what God is telling us about himself. The things that God tells us are utterly mysterious and beyond our human reason. When we as Catholics talk about revelation, we say that there is only one source of divine revelation, and that is Jesus Christ. At the same time, we also profess that there are two distinct modes of transmission, namely sacred scripture and apostolic tradition. Paragraph 81 states that sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. This is manifested in the 72 books of the Bible. While paragraph 81 describes sacred tradition, it really doesn't clearly state what is contained in the tradition. For that, we need to look to paragraph 76. In there, we read that apostolic tradition contains the transmission of the gospel orally by the apostles who handed on by the spoken word of their preaching and by the example they gave and by the institutions they established of what they have received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and works, or whether they had learned it at the promptings of the Holy Spirit. This paragraph gives us the clearest expression of what is meant when we use the word apostolic tradition. As Catholics, we believe that there is more to our faith than the Word of God and Scripture. Our faith is a living faith, and it's not just a set of rules and creeds and doctrines, but an ongoing life with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, in which we are commanded to probe more deeply the mysteries that have been revealed, the truth that has been exposed, and the love that is manifested to us every day by Jesus and his Church through his sacraments. That's a daily adventure for us, and to dive into scripture and tradition always yields for us great and wonderful fruits. Dr. Leonard Galen Rimso is back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show from the McGrath Center for Church Life at Notre Dame. Good morning, Dr. De Lorenzo. Good morning. Nice to be with you again. It's nice to have you. And we are going to be talking about prayer and the incarnation today. To set up this conversation, first off, can you explain why, if we want Jesus to teach us to pray, we need to do more than just read what he has to say in the Gospels? Well, the gift of our Christian life that Christ himself gives us is the gift of his own life. And the point of the Christian life, you could say, is to grow into intimacy with Him. When we seek Him out to learn how to pray, we are indeed seeking how to address ourselves to His Heavenly Father, how to receive everything from His Heavenly Father. But we always must remember that it's His Father. It does not begin as our Father. It, be- it becomes our Father. He becomes our mm-hmm. Father only because Christ gives us the gift of His Father. And so it's growing into Christ's 
prayer, that is really the heart of the Christian life of prayer, to learn from him how to pray, to join him in his prayer, and then to realize and recognize that we are welcome to open up our entire lives into him to address it to his Father. And so with that groundwork laid, can you talk about, I mean, some, some of the implications of the nativity, of the Word becoming flesh? The Son of God humbles himself to take on everything of our condition. That's the movement of the Incarnation, and we glimpse it for the first time in the nativity. But we see there, of course, the unbelievable humility of our God. The Word who created all things submits himself to being the one without words. An infant, infans, means the one without speech. It's the beginning, or the continuation, you might even say, if you take his conception, the continuation, the furthering of his humility to take on every aspect of our life. But to see this from the other side, we also see the way in which our Lord dignifies our humanity. He is welcomed into this world by the care and preparation of a mother and father, by his mother's solemn uh, receptance of him without sin, by his father Joseph's work and diligence to create a home for him. And it shows us for sure that as we receive the Lord into our lives, he is the one who does the most magnificent work in humbling himself. But it is not without our own response in making a, a welcoming place for him and preparing our hearts and our homes to receive him. And so part of the mystery of the nativity that we should never discount is the way in which we are dignified to receive our Lord and our God. You write about this in a book you wrote called Into the Heart of the Father. And and in your chapter on this, you you talk about how Christ's descent to share in our condition of humanity is reflected in the saints. And you bring up the example of, of Father Damien in, in Molokai. Can you, can you talk about that just to give us a, a bit of a concrete example of what you mean by, by witnessing what Jesus did and how to incorporate that into our mm. life of prayer? Well, we glimpse the incarnate love of God in the resplendence of the saints. They are ones who do not just love Christ, though they do. They have actually given themselves over to Christ's way of loving. So to take someone like Father Damien, who many would know, uh, chose willingly and desired to go and to serve those who were suffering from leprosy on Molokai, he himself went and hastened so closely to the wounds of those who were suffering to heed their condition as if it were his only good. So deeply did he take that on that, as we know, he himself contracted the disease that he was there to help uh, alleviate, to help these uh, people to suffer with. And there we can see something of a glimpse of the mystery of the incarnate love of God. So deep is his love for us that he would suffer what we suffer, though it is not his own to suffer. He takes it on as if it were his own. And for any of us, this should be the greatest of all consolations, that when we suffer, that when we long, that when we are not complete, and when, even when we sin, the Son of God humbles himself, to take on all the conditions of how we are, even to, you could say, to dirty himself or to thicken himself with what we are sickened with. Mm. But it's in that union of God with our condition that salvation is open wide. He shares everything with us so that we may share everything with him. It's so beautiful. And what do you think is the, the significance of God praying human prayers? I'm not sure that we ever think about that. <laughs> so we get this, of course, 
for the Church in the great uh, 150 Psalms, in the Psalter, that there we find the entire human condition. But these are the prayers that Jesus prayed. He took on his own lips these words that range from the greatest height of intimacy, say, a psalm that speaks of being known by God no matter where we are, from the highest heights to the lowest depths, even to the gravest lamentation, to feeling, and in fact, perhaps even being abandoned by God, forsaken by God. The Son of God takes on all of those conditions. He actually prayed these prayers. And now as we pray these prayers, we're not just praying on our own or seeking for some kind of help, even just as a human community. Our voice is being taken up into the voice of the Son of God, who has offered these prayers for us. And so when we pray, He prays in us, and we pray with Him. All Christian prayer is a prayer of communion, because Christ has made His communion with the Father our communion with one another in Him. Wow, really? Like, when we pray the <laughs> prayers like that, that's what's happening? That is indeed what we're, what we're open to, and that goes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, that as Christians, when we pray, we're not just given a recipe that Christ has given to us. We're actually given His prayer to pray as our own. He welcomes us into His prayer, and we see that in no greater place than in the Our Father. When, even right at the beginning, when we say Our Father, we're addressing His Father as Our Father. Wow. He has allowed our God to be, he shares in our God as his God and gives us his Father as our Father. So it is the mingling of voices, the mingling of lives, the mingling of our hearts and our flesh with him that is indeed the path of Christian prayer. You know, that's really incredible because I, I'm going to sound like I'm diminishing our very salvation, which is not my, <laughs> which is not my intention with sure. this question. But we, we often think about the the nativity and the incarnation of Christ as being you know this this entry point of God into history to bring about our salvation and and yes absolutely that's true um, but there's so much more to it than that it is this is the full pledge of the union of God with us this is what has been anticipated in all of salvation hif- history from creation onwards this is the plan from the beginning. It's not just a response to sin, though now there is the remedy to sin in this movement of God towards us. The plan from the beginning, you can say, God's desire in creation for us is to be wedded to Him, to share in His Sabbath rest on the final day, to be one in His life. As Catholics, we enter into that, of course, beginning in baptism, when we're emerged, submerged into the waters, when we take on the form of God's life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we begin to be open to that life more and more fully. That's the plan of creation being done for each one of us as we're baptized and made into the body of Christ, joining into the life of God. So when we say this about prayer, what we're saying, I think, is that prayer is the avenue by which we work out being the Christians we're called to be that it's, first of all, God who prays for us and with us in the Son by the Spirit, and our prayers are always a response to His desire to be one with us. Some really incredible thoughts here about the Incarnation and prayer. We've been talking to Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo. He's with the McGrath Center for Church Life. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back.
For 150 years, the Komboni missionaries have followed in the footsteps of their founders and Daniel Komboni. We are an active missionary group sharing our deep faith in God through service to the poorest and most abandoned people around the world, satisfying both the physical and spiritual needs of the people in our mission. Please support our mission work with a generous year-end gift today. Thank you for your prayers and kindness. Give today at Kombonimissionaries.org. That is Kombonimissionaries.org. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show, where you'll get news from the Catholic perspective, while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, is a family-owned business for over 75 years, manufacturing and repairing corrosion-resistant storage tanks, reactors, and pressure vessels. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on The Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. EWTN, communicating the faith. And I wanted to tell you guys how great your show is because uh, I listen to you guys for every, every day for the last past five and a half months. It's because of you guys that I came to the Catholic faith. Now I'm going to church on Sunday for the first time because I just got out yesterday from jail. And I got my mom to go too. And my girlfriend is also going with me. Wow. She's willing to give the Catholic faith a try. EWTN, live truth, live Catholic. Sunrise Morning Show continues. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Joseph Pierce, who's written a number of books uh, that uh, explore the Catholic literary tradition, including a couple of books about Lord of the Rings, Bilbo's Journey and Frodo's Journey. He's even done a Catholic course on the hidden meaning in The Hobbit. Joseph, good morning. Good morning, Matt. So December the 25th, a fairly important date in our world, but also a fairly important date in Middle Earth. I wonder if you could get into that a little bit. Yes, indeed, and most people won't know that. Even those who know the date on which the ring destroyed, which is March the 25th, often don't know that December the 25th, Christmas Day, also plays a significant role in the Lord of the Rings, and, and with the emphasis on the word significant, because you know, it's actually an allegorical connection to the deeper moral meaning of the work. December the 25th, in the actual text of the Lord of the Rings, we're just told that the Fellowship of the Ring leaves Rivendell in late December. But in one of the appendices, we're told specifically they actually leave on December the 25th. So the Fellowship leave Rivendell on what we now know in the Christian context to be Christmas Day. And of course, the Frodo and Sam arrive at Mount Doom, Golgotha, on March the 25th, which is both the Feast of the Annunciation, but also, according to tradition, that the, the, the uh, historical date of the crucifixion. So the, so the actual journey of Frodo Baggins as the ring-bearer, the cross-bearer, uh, begins uh, at Rivendell on, on the, the date of Christ's birth and ends on Mount Doom, Golgotha, on the date of his death. So we actually see the allegorical journey, if you like, uh, of Frodo in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. 
It is kind of interesting because Tolkien was careful to not do what C.S. Lewis was doing, right? Where there's not a one-to-one ratio. You can't point to the Lord of the Rings like you can point to Narnia and say, well, Aslan's Jesus, right? You can't necessarily do that in Lord of the Rings, although the fingerprints do seem to be everywhere. Uh, I mean, and, and this is just one major example. Yes, I mean, basically, a better, a better analogy than Narnia, you're correct. I mean, you know, in Narnia, for instance, Aslan is always a figure of the Son of God in all the stories at all times. Tolkien's much more subtle than that. And where he, the, the better analogy would be medieval literature, which he loves so much. He's using similar allegorical techniques as the Beowulf poet uses, and the, the anonymous poet who wrote uh, Segrain the Green Knight also uses. In Segrain the Green Knight, for instance, that the, the story begins on Christmas Day uh, during, the, during the Christmas festivities. Uh, it ends on, uh, at Christmas. Uh, there's a penitential part of the story when, when the Segrain is going through the desert during Advent, and he sets off on his journey on All Saints Day. So what Tolkien is doing is borrowing, actually, from the Christian writers of the medieval period. Well, what's interesting is how many people have borrowed from him since, or how, well, maybe not even necessarily borrowed from him, but this sense that big things happen on Christmas, uh, right? Even though Christ is not present in any sort of like incarnational form in, in Middle Earth, right? They're not, they're not worshiping, they're not Christians, right, uh, in, in Middle Earth. But it is interesting how many stories, I mean, from stuff as cartoonish as The Grinch, right, to something that's more sort of like in the classic film realm, such as It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey has this massive turning of heart on Christmas, right, when he rethinks his whole life and sees that there's more to it than he ever realized. And then, of course, probably the most famous one uh, is Charles Dickens and Scrooge's conversion that happens in the context of Christmas. I mean, this is really a day that so many writers, and of course Tolkien being in that stream, have pointed to and said, this this changes things. Yes, very much so. And, you know, I, I was up at Thomas More College of Liberal Arts uh, this past week to do our final classes, and we decided to have a little Christmas celebration where we let the students actually select whatever their famous uh, f- favorite literary Christmas pieces were. And it's just astonishing, the, the array of people that found um, you know, uh, allegorically uh, connected pieces about Christmas from writers as, as different as uh, as Dostoevsky, uh, Washington Irving, obviously Chesterton, Belloc, medieval Christmas revels, um, Christina Rossetti, uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson. I mean, basically, you know, obviously Christmas is a day that changes everything. It's it's, it's when the uh, the Lord and Savior of the cosmos enters the world. Uh, in his birth, um, and and so it, this this significance I think resonates. And one thing really surprised me actually, Matt, is one of the students shows a track by a, a contemporary Swedish heavy metal band called Sabaton, who I'd never heard of, called Christmas Truce, which is, was inspired by the famous Christmas Truce during World War One, where British and German soldiers met in no man's land and played football uh, on Christmas Day and had that. The, the moment of peace that transcended the murderous uh, mayhem of war. There is something truly joyful and peaceful that's brought into the world by the presence of Christ, and, and we see it in these manifestations of Christian literature. Also, of course, you know, with Christmas uh, being this this point of the incarnation, it does not, of course, end there. This is where Christ's earthly journey really becomes apparent to everyone from, you know, 
it had been kind of a secret between Joseph and Mary somewhat to that point, and now the shepherds are informed by the message of the angels. The uh, wise men come from the east to pay tribute. Uh, this is the beginning of a journey. It makes sense that Tolkien would say, all right, this is going to be a great date to talk about the beginning of a journey that will undo the power of evil for good, or at least uh, for uh, the measurable future in Middle-earth. Yes, exactly. And, and, and although, as you, you rightly point out, the Middle-earth is not Christian in the sense that the story takes place thousands of years before Christmas Day, before the birth of Christ, of course, the Christ is still the actual ruler of Middle-earth. And that's really what, what, what Tolkien is getting at, is that although Christ has not revealed himself as a, a man yet, he's not been born uh, and revealed in that epiphanous sense, uh, he nonetheless is still king of the king of the universe. Uh, so, so it's appropriate that things should be happening on dates that will become significant uh, through the incarnation, even that this is happening in the story thousands of years before the time of Christ, because Christ is the king of Middle-earth. He is the Lord of the Rings, which is why the ring is destroyed on March the 25th, and why Frodo leaves uh, Rivendell with the Fellowship of the Ring on Christmas Day. It is pretty fascinating. I wonder if our listeners wanted to get into some of these hidden meanings of Lord of the Rings, what are some of the things that you've produced and worked on over the years uh, that people can get a hold of so they can dig in and find some of these clues that Tolkien has littered through his narrative? Well, it depends how deep they want to go. If they want to go deep, they can actually join the inner sanctum of my website where there's a 45-part course uh, on uh, Tolkien and Lewis, where we go really, di- really deep. Um, but if they want to go, perhaps not go quite that deep, they could buy my book, Frodo's Journey, which is subtitled Discovering the Hidden Meaning in the Lord of the Rings, which is published by Tan Books. Well, it is uh, a great opportunity, especially this time of year. I think people want to cozy up with something uh, to read and, and dig in, and maybe even get to another layer of something that they have read a, a couple of times and is deeply beloved to them. Uh, as, as you mentioned, you've got Frodo's Journey, uh, you've got Bilbo's Journey, you've got the Catholic Courses as well, and so I encourage people to check those out. jpierce.co is uh, linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. And Joseph, thank you as always for your time. It's always great to dig into the great works of literature and uh, put on our Catholic glasses to do so. Much appreciated, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Matt, and Merry Christmas to you, everyone on Sacred Heart Radio. That'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thank you for listening. For Anna Mitchell and Paul Lockman, I'm Matt Swain. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.